You're listening to Radio 1190, 1190 AM, KBCU, Boulder, Denver, 98.9 FM, Translator, K255DA, Boulder, and of course, we're always on Radio1190.org, wherever you are. Uh, My name's Lucy, I'm your news director, and you're listening to News Underground. Uh, We are every Monday and Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., just bringing you current events, local, uh, interesting people, and all that jazz. Uh, And today, I have a great show for you. Um, We're going to be talking about fossil fuels and the American West and photography um, through two different guests. But our first guest is Antonia Uez. Uh, she is a 2019-2020 uh, Ted Scripps Fellow at the Center for Environmental Journalism that's here on the CU Boulder campus, uh, which she's using this fellowship to write a book on the end of the fossil fuel area, era. Uh, previously, she was a fellow uh, at Yale University in the Pointer program uh, and at C, uh, UC Berkeley, excuse me. Um, and she's been a journalist kind of doing stuff all over. She's covered a lot of fossil fuel issues. Um, she's written for Rolling Stone, Harper's Magazine, Newsweek, The Atlantic, uh, so many more. And I'm excited to have her in the station. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And so you're having this talk. The reason mainly that we have you on is that on Wednesday, October 16th, which is this Wednesday, uh, at 5.30, you're hosting this talk. Um, It's titled, A River of Oil Runs Through It, uh, War, Authoritarianism, and the Climate Crisis, and the Global Effort to Change Course. Um, For those who are interested in attending, uh, it's free and open to the public. Uh, It's in Wolf Law 206, so that's in the law building um, that's kind of in the Kittredge area complex. Uh, What is kind of the uh, motivation behind having this talk is it related to your fellowship how is it how is it kind of related to you yeah i was really uh, happy to be invited by the global studies residential academic program to give this talk Um, and the talk um, is initially geared at their students that are covering these overlapping issues of democracy sustainability um, natural resources, um, and so uh, I was excited to receive the invitation, and it's of course open uh, not only to uh, the whole CU um, public, but the public at large. And um, I'm really happy to be here at the university and able to do things like give talks. I, I uh, have been trying to give a lot of public presentations, and this is one of them. Um, and I actually grew up in Boulder, so I attended Boulder High. Um, I, I grew up here, but I moved away and haven't lived here in 30 years. I came back almost 30 years to the day from when I left to receive the Scripps Fellowship. And what the Scripps Fellowship is, is a one-year academic fellowship offered to working journalists. So there's five working journalists. We come, we get a year to be at the university, Um, We propose a project that we're going to work on during the year. We audit classes. We get time off from day-to-day reporting. Uh, We're in a seminar at the Center for Environmental Journalism uh, as part of the journalism school and get to learn from each other and um, learn from CU and learn from Colorado. And for me, as someone who's worked on fossil fuels, in particular as a journalist for a very long time, um, it was particularly important to come home to Colorado to work on this book because Colorado has been so transformed by oil and gas development, certainly since I left, but in particular in the last 
um, 10, even to five, last five years. Um, and, you know, the, the statistics on that are pretty overwhelming. Um, and so, for example, and we're going to turn off that fan so you guys aren't getting this uh, bluster that you're hearing on the radio. <laughs> Ah, there it is. That's better. Um, so, for example, Boulder County um, abuts Weld County, and Weld County is the place where uh, there's just been this boom in oil development in particular. And so Weld County, just in the last five years alone, has seen a 1,000% increase, 1,000% increase in the amount of oil that's produced in the county in just the last five years. And that's really transformed the landscape and the experience of people who live there, but anyone who's driven, you know, from Denver to Boulder, coming from the airport into Boulder, you'll have seen a significant increase um, in oil and gas operations, and it's almost all fracking, fracking for oil in particular, um, and that's created this um, moment that's happening in the state where we're seeing uh, an overwhelming increase in oil and gas production at the same time as a huge pushback and a desire in some places to stop that production altogether, uh, to regulate it. And that push and pull between communities wanting to stop fossil fuel production and those wanting to continue it and maintain it is the story of the book that I'm writing, which is happening quite extensively on the national level, on the global level, and also right here in Colorado. And fossil fuels, are not the easiest topic. They're maybe not the most fun topic, not the most uplifting topic. Uh, but what got you into really kind of dedicating your career to this? Because this is not the only book or uh, kind of project that you've done on fossil fuels, right? Yeah, so this book, uh, which will be on the end of the fossil fuel era, um, is uh, will be my fourth book. Um, my first book is on the Bush administration. It's called The Bush Agenda. And that definitely had an uh, oil and gas aspect to it, looking at the political, um, military, environmental, uh, all the different ways in which oil and gas manifested itself and the oil and gas agenda manifested itself in the Bush administration, uh, the George W. Bush administration. My next book was called The Tyranny of Oil, about looking at the oil industry itself, uh, what is it doing, who is it, who's it comprised of, and, and what are its um, goals and activities. And then my third book was on the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico from 2010, and I spent a year uh, primarily on the ground reporting from communities impacted by the spill, but also looking at uh, workers who were um, uh, near the rig and on, near the rig when it exploded and workers involved in the industry um, executives who were involved, policymakers, um, and that was Black Tide. And it was really with the Bush administration that my attention shifted to oil and gas because at that point, prior to the Trump administration, that really was, I think, in, in U.S. history, the um, high point of the influence of the oil and gas industry on federal policymaking. I think the Trump administration has, has topped that. Um, but at the time, it was this really uh, unique, different um, activity uh, to see this relationship between the industry and the, and the federal government. And with that, my attention just increasingly shifted to the importance of understanding the industry um, and understanding its impact. So I started a reporting program called Uncovering Oil, and for and I 
basically use a starting point of looking at oil development in particular. Fossil fuels obviously also include natural gas and coal. But for me, I think oil is unique among those resources in the ways that it impacts war, the economy, politics, the climate, public health, et cetera, et cetera. And so I use oil as a jumping off point from which to look at all of these different um, impacts and to look at um, those communities uh, pushing back against the industry. And what have you seen with that? Because um, especially in you know the last 10 years ago or so, um, there's been maybe more active pushback than, than there was before against fracking, against oil drilling, um, against pipelines, things like that. How have you seen communities um, resisting or larger larger scale resistance? Basically, what you, what one sees is that um, in the history of oil development, and it's in a sort of the modern version of oil development, which is oil for mass consumption. So for thousands of years, communities have have used naturally seeping oil that just comes out of the ground um, into water streams. Um, for thousands of years, communities use that as a sealant on canoes, for example, or as um, uh, for medicinal purposes. But it was the commercialization, the mass production, which was something new that was actually introduced in the United States in Pennsylvania 150 years ago, this mass production of this, of this resource. And what you see once the mass production begins is that anywhere and everywhere that there is mass production of oil, there is a community that lives where it's being sought after um, or is being used to go get it that has resisted it. So there's a very long history. The birth of the industry is actually born out of resistance to the industry. Um, and it's actually referred to as the Great Oil Wars of Pennsylvania, mass resistance, particularly against Standard Oil Company. Um, and that's a long history. What's new is the scale and the reach of the oil industry. So at this stage in what's left of the world's oil, um, we're going in, we're using new techniques like fracking or fracking isn't a new technique, but the way that it's being used is new and the extent to which it's being used is new. Um, we're using much deeper offshore drilling. We're going into sensitive places that have previously been deemed too, too environmentally important uh, uh, to drill in. Uh, I argue quite extensively that though the Iraq war wasn't only about oil, it was certainly a key part of, uh, of that war. Um, and the, the extremes to which will allow the industry to go have gotten much greater, as are the communities that are now directly impacted. So there's been oil development all around the world that has come to the United States. But it's really only very recently, since the fracking boom in 2006, that oil production has expanded all across the country. And now so many more people are directly experiencing that same thing that people in Ecuador, in Nigeria, in uh, across the Middle East were encountering. And now we're here, we're experiencing it. And what happens for most people who live where oil is developed is that they don't like it. And they would much rather it happen somewhere else or that it doesn't happen at all. And so that's really increased the number of people who have joined resistance movements and they are learning from those who have been in these struggles for the longest amount of time so that really is in particular indigenous populations across the world across the united states who have been engaged in these same struggles for a very long time since the beginning of the industry and in some cases very successfully resisting it 
and that has increasingly be informing those the movements who are now new to this experience. Also at the same time, there is of course greater knowledge of the impacts, including climate. So I think the, the, the fact that more people are experiencing the impacts, more people are not liking the impacts, and greater awareness about climate change and the, that burning of fossil fuels is the primary contributor uh, to the changing climate is what has vastly expanded um, this resistance movement, which has definitely grown hand in hand with the, with the growth of the industry. And you've done work both nationally, as you mentioned, as well as internationally. Do you find, well, what, what similarities and what differences do you find from um, attitudes both on the side of the fossil fuel industry as well as the side of resistors in the U.S. versus those in other countries globally? Um, are they similar? Are they different? How so? You know, I, I, um, it's, it's an interesting question. It's a little hard to answer. There are extreme local differences, but there also are just universalisms. Um, I think people are everywhere concerned about health impacts, uh, and particular, the more data that's coming out, uh, which it's taken a while to get really good data. on the. When I, so when I was covering the BP oil spill, for example, there was very little data on the human impacts of oil spills. And one of the reasons for that is that when there have been oil spills, research often ends up in lawsuits, and the lawsuits have negotiated settlements, and part of the negotiated settlements is that none of the data is allowed to be released. And that's really common. Also, the industry in a lot of ways has supported research at a lot of, um, for, for example, academic institutions, and it has limited the scope of the research and its availability. That's been changing. The more people are directly impacted by oil, the more they're demanding that research, the more that researchers are having more money for it and more freedom to provide it. Um, and as we're seeing, you know, just, you know, extremely profound data on um, the impacts on, for example, women, uh, pollution impacting the ability, and some great research has come right out of the University of Colorado on this recently, um, the ability of women to get pregnant, to carry pregnancies to term, uh, the increase in um, uh, developmental uh, problems as, res as a result of pregnancies that are carried to term that are the direct result of the exposure to the pollutants from uh, oil and gas development as well as um, exhaust, of course, from cars and pollution from refineries, um, all the different m modes of um, exposure, but including from the production sites directly themselves. But these are things that people have experienced and known and that are just being now supported by the data. So every community I've ever interviewed, whether it's in the Ecuadorian Amazon or in a tiny village in Afghanistan or in Broomfield, <laughs> will say, I can't, you know, I can't breathe when they're producing. I get nosebleeds. I get asthma. Women aren't having babies. Why aren't women having babies? You know, people know these impacts, and they've um, uh, spoken about them and experienced them and uh, organized around them. And now that is being, um, you know, replicated in more places and known in more, in more places. So that's a similarity. The other similarity, though, the other thing that I'm really interested in in my research is looking at sort of, you know, who wants to maintain oil in particular as the dominant resource. And that is, of course, companies. So I think, you know, if you look at 
the Exxon Mobiles, the Shells, the Chevrons, um, and the the smaller companies, BP, um, and the smaller companies, BP is not a smaller company, the smaller companies, for example, operating in Colorado. Um, while there's a, a push often to try and encourage them to become, for example, renewable alternative energy companies instead of fossil fuel companies, there has never been any interest among these companies in doing that, and they're not going to do that. Um, ExxonMobil in particular, what I actually love about ExxonMobil is it, the honesty with which it often it, it operates in this particular area, which is it has never claimed any interest in renewables, and it won't. You know, They are oil companies. They make money off of being oil companies. People, In their mind, people will always use oil, and they will be there to provide it. And right now, they're not wrong. It is the do- it still is the dominant energy resource, and they are going to continue to prov- to provide that. So the companies are obviously very interested in maintaining fossil fuels, um, and the world still is deeply, deeply reliant and intertwined on these resources, and that is absolutely a given. But then there's also the political aspect, and so I'm very interested in looking at the relationship, in particular, with in that's formed within this administration between the Trump administration, um, Putin, uh, Putin's regime in Russia, and Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, Salman in Saudi Arabia. And there is a unique alliance that's formed between then and I think the heart of those three countries coming together and Putin's in Saudi Arabia right now, as I'm speaking, the first time he's been there in a decade. The very first trip that Donald Trump took as a president to the United States, the very first one, Saudi Arabia. We obviously know there's a there's a little bit of news out there about the relationship of Russia and the Trump administration, Putin and Trump. Um, and I think at the heart of the relationship between these three nations is their, for, for the, from their perspective, the necessity of maintaining oil as a dominant resource. Saudi Arabia, completely dependent on oil. Russia, very, very, very much dependent on oil. And Putin would like to see that even uh, more so. The Trump, for Trump, he has expanded oil and gas uh, development uh, far surpassing any other administration before him, far surpassing the Bush administration. I don't think that there's the same type of um, sort of political, theoretical allegiance of the Trump administration to oil and gas. I think it's a practical relationship between where funding is coming, where political support is coming, and his relationship to Putin. Um, And I think that that manifests itself in a deep, deep, deep commitment to what the Trump administration has termed the necessity to move from what had always been in U.S. administrations a commitment to energy independence in the United States. Under the Trump administration, the term is now energy dominance. Uh, The United States is, and from the Trump perspective, uh, we're going to open up every single you know area that we can to oil and gas development to make the United States the world's dominant uh, energy provider, uh, in particular oil and natural gas and coal, um, not energy as in terms of renewable energy. Um, and that has been a guiding principle of this administration. Uh, and I think that that the the political necessity that those countries see or our country sees of maintaining that dominance is the um, most important counterforce to this also just like burgeoning, uh, massively growing movement uh, to end fossil fuels. And I think if we, you know, if people hadn't seen it before, the September 20th mass student-led protest, 7.6 million people marching across and engaging in direct action across the world. Um, over 7,000 in this state was really good 
evidence of the movement, the counter movement, but both are happening uh, at the same time. Right. And of course, a lot is happening on the national and international stage with, you know, the Paris Agreement and all of that. But I'd love to bring it back to your work kind of on the ground as a journalist. Obviously, as you mentioned, the oil and gas industry is not the most transparent. Um, and I'd like to kind of hear from you some of the um, struggles and kind of behind the scenes that you've had to deal with in doing this sort of investigation and what you've done to kind of work around it or find out, uh, finally get to the story that you're looking for. I mean, I've traveled all around the world um, reporting on this subject. As you said, I've reported for um, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, Harper's Magazine, The Nation, Ms. Magazine, The Advocate, New York Times, uh, you, you name it, small, small to big, um, Pacific Standard Magazine, Grist, like small to big outlets um, <clears throat> all over the state, this state. Um, and there are a number of challenges to reporting on this industry. The, the lack of transparency is certainly one. So I'll just actually deviate from that for one second because I wanted to say this after I said that ExxonMobil, what I like about them is their honesty. Of course, I want to add a little bit to that, which is that ExxonMobil is, is renowned actually for the company that led the effort in the 19, back in the 1970s, their own research demonstrated that the burning of fossil fuels causes climate change. And they had that information. They were making decisions based on that information, but they then chose to suppress that information, not only from their own shareholders and not only and from the public. And then they went even further, which was to invest aggressively in a disinformation campaign, which was to fund climate change denialism. But that sort of behavior, you know, it makes being a, a journalist difficult when you're getting that type level of misdirection and very expensive misdirection being led by the industry. So I've reported from Afghanistan, from the Ecuadorian Amazon, um, across all across the country uh, on oil spills, big companies, small companies, um, and everyone is different. And I really think the lesson, probably the most important lesson, is um, being on the ground as much as possible with uh, those people most directly impacted. So whether that's the workers who are doing the work in the field, I just did a, a long series on the Dakota Access Pipeline, for example, and that was covering everything from the protests in Standing Rock um, against the pipeline to uh, going around the state with workers whose job it is to build the pipeline and to talk about um, what their job is like. Um, but being on the ground with um, with those communities always provides the best source of information or at least the best starting off point for information and the easiest way also to get around misdire misdirection. Um, and then it's just good old-fashioned journalism, which is often sitting in a library with books, um, you know, reading books, reading other, other journalist reports, uh, going through all of the amazing public data, although it's harder with the Trump administration, but that is made available that you just have to spend time uh, digging through to understand data and stories um, and interviews, 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 uh, interviews, just talking to people who know more than you do and learning more. And that's always been the way that I've gotten around obstructionism from companies. One of the things that we do have in the United States, which is nice, is there is a certain level of um, uh, reporting requirements that are required of our publicly traded companies that you don't have. For example, if I'm reporting on oil companies in Russia, oil companies in China, far, far, far more difficult to do that. For one thing, it's less safe for journalists, but also there just isn't a public reporting requirement the way we have 
requirements that companies file reports with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission detailing, it's called their 10Ks, great resource for students out there, uh, detailing all sorts of financial information about the companies um, and learning what those those resources are. But there's nothing to compare to being on the ground. And that was one of the things about, again, being back in Boulder, is there's a new uh, there's oil development 10 minutes from my father's home. You know, this is, it's not hard for me to get to on the ground to be on this, to be on this story. And what was somewhat overwhelming when I actually first got here was all of the activity that's happening. You could cover something every single day that's from a hearing to a protest uh, to development taking place at a field um, to lobbying efforts being done by the industry to new reports coming out about the industry. You know, this is really a hotbed state. Um, Oil development has in, has increased in this state. Let me get this down because I wrote it down. Has oil development in the state has quadrupled overall in the whole state in just the last seven years, and we're now one of the top states producing oil and top states producing natural gas, and we're still producing coal. Um, so this is a a very important issue, obviously here. And then it and then understanding it here helps helps understanding it around the world. So you know we had been talking beforehand that we could talk right now about. Ukraine. We could about the conflict in Ukraine, about the Ukraine scandal. It's, instead, we could talk about Ecuador. We could talk about Iran. We could go almost anywhere in the world right now, and we could talk about the significance of oil in those issues. And that's why I think um, it's such a unique and important issue to understand. Yeah, and I wish we had hours <laughs> to talk about this, of course. Uh, but I think we're gonna we're gonna leave it there, just so you have something to talk about on Wednesday. Exactly. Uh, I've been speaking with Antonia Yuhas. She's a Ted Scripps Fellow at the Center for Environmental Journalism here on campus. Um, and this Wednesday, October 16th at 5.30, she's giving a lecture in Wolf Law 206. That's kind of in the Kittredge area, if you're not familiar with the law building. Um, but the talk is titled, A River of Oil Runs Through It, War, Authoritarianism, and the Climate Crisis in the Global Effort to Change Course. Uh, and you can hear all about what we've been talking about today and more uh, on Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You're listening to News Underground, if you didn't know that. My name's Lucy. I'm your news director. Uh, and I've got another interview for you today. We've got a nice a nice packed schedule. Uh, earlier today, I spoke with Peter Gowen. He is an esteemed uh, photographer who has experience photographing the West and um, nuclear kind of landscapes specifically. specifically um, and we spoke earlier as he is also having a talk tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, at 6.30 um, in the Visual Arts Complex. So uh, take a listen to our conversation, and I'll be back in a little bit to give you some uh, news headlines before we're done for the day. Uh, you're listening to Radio 1190, 1190 AM Boulder, Denver, 98.9 FM in the Boulder Valley, and we're always on Radio1190.org. I am Peter Gowen. I am a foundation professor of art and time-based media at the University of Nevada, Reno. And just in case you're wondering, a foundation professor is not someone who teaches foundations. It is an honor that is bestowed upon three faculty annually, and only three. And those faculty allegedly demonstrate excellence in research and teaching. 
that's why the title. And you're a pretty decorated photographer and kind of storyteller, especially for the American West. What got you into this sort of geographic region and, and topic? Well, I used to live in San Francisco and I ran bookstores, so that is where I was rooted. The idea of working on the American West and dealing with issues that matter to us in the American West came from coming to Nevada, where we've detonated more than a thousand nuclear bombs in the state of Nevada, which most of my students did not know we did. So this isn't an attitude about our landscape where our governor at that time his name was Governor Russell, felt that Nevada was a wasteland, but once we invited the test site, it was a landscape blooming with atoms, that we had brought purpose to a useless landscape. Well, if you look through the lens of environmentalism, this is quite a, a scary topic, particularly since the dawn of the nuclear age has affected all of us with radiant 7% nuclear and radioactivity everywhere on the planet. So. If we want to talk about the, the influence of humans on the planet, this is a pretty catastrophic consequence. So I felt that as a professor in the state of Nevada, it was very important for me to bear witness using my skills as an artist to begin to represent how we think and how we look and how we consider the hubris of human action on the environment and within the environment. That got me started. Colorado has its own history with Rocky Flats, with nuclear work. And I've shown work, actually, at their weapons testing facility. That's one of the other things we do is the Collective Atomic Photographers Guild, is we show our works uh, in a variety of different places around the world, so the Peace Museum in Europe, for example. Um, I've That work's been in five different continents, I think. It's almost always on exhibit somewhere. And it's about bearing witness to this legacy, which is not considered by many people now the most important aspect of our uh, environmental concern. Obviously, climate change has usurped the threat of nuclear contamination. But when you look at global events, the conflicts between India and Pakistan, and you look at the national stage and the international stage, this is some pretty scary stuff, particularly when we abandon our treaties with our adversaries and begin to um, engage in another uh, war of building more and more thermonuclear weapons. You mentioned something really interesting to me, this idea of atomic photography. Can you tell me more about that and like the community around that and kind of what that looks like? The, the, the modernist concept of the individual artist, you, you know, acting out uh, scenes of wild, crazy, abandoned and, and perhaps uh, moments of genius, uh, has given way to these forms of collaborative efforts to really communicate and contribute to the public debate on a variety of issues. Uh, the, the, there are just a number of these uh, organizations and groups, and they're loosely collective. Uh, in this case, there's Water in the West is another one, for example, but this one, the Atomic Photographers Guild, is really all of those photographers who have documented the nuclear lands. And it goes all the way back to the dawn of the nuclear age in the 1940s, to the present, and it's international. The idea here is to really focus through photography and the other fine arts our collective attention on the consequences of these actions. Out of sight, out of mind. We're trying to bring this into sight, into mind. 
and here rocky flats you know the contamination is a serious issue hanford it's a serious issue when i photographed at hanford uh, the statistics there indicate that when hanford was active if you drank a six to eight glass eight ounce glass of water you would be getting the equivalent of one chest x-ray in terms of radioactivity so just think about the amount of human consumption it's no surprise that there have been many uh, cancer clusters in the columbia river uh, river area so what we're trying to do is just raise attention use our artistic and creative expression to bring to the public forefront the consequences of human hubris. And so this group, which is actually the founders in Canada, um, we constantly um, have exhibits that go around. We have people who set these exhibits up. We have work in archives. Curators do it. Sometimes we don't even know that our work's being exhibited. Uh, it's used on educational materials. Uh, it's just another way of an artist contributing as a, as a kind of give back to the community. And you talk a you were talking a bit about consequences of nuclear actions and I'm sure it's it's a very interesting experience to witness that um, I mean today's indigenous people's day and we know for a fact that indigenous folks have disproportionately received the most negative consequences um, from use of lands for nuclear testing and just general abuse what has it been like for you to be a witness to all of that well, in fact, you're, you're correct about that, Lucy, because I was on the grounds photographing at the Nevada test site when there was still active underground testing. As underground, not above ground. I'm not that old. So underground, but still, uh, this is a devastating experience. It's, uh, it's a man-made earthquake, essentially. But I also work as a video producer and have produced programs for public television and uh, one of my programs was called Protest Theater, and it was a documentary of the protests done at Mercury at the Nevada test site objecting to uh, active testing. And, and the collaboration of different communities included a very strong Native American presence. And in fact, uh, that video, which was 30 minutes long, uh, produced years and years ago, obviously, uh, is now being used by scholars who are studying the protest set and history of aboriginal communities tribal communities in the american southwest because there's also this illusion that native communities are not activists in opposition to these environmental actions that are taking place on their uh, native and ancestral lands to be there during these times is uh, it's a fascinating experience not just in in bearing witness but it's also the manipulation of media how we're beginning to represent this, how people who are protesting represent this. So protesters would be wearing costumes or they'd have placards or they'd have uh, war paint. But when the mainstream media gets hold of these, they convert that into eccentrics and outcasts and people who are really nothing better to do. It's quite amazing to look at how the media sanitizes, negotiates these expressions of political activism and bearing witness to the times of our day and condenses it into this sanitized process of unique exceptionalism that should not be listened to. So that is a takeaway from all of this. The other side of it is these are passionate, committed people who are giving of their time and of their sense of responsibility to, again, collectively bear witness. 
And that's an important part of a student's life. It's an important part of a faculty's life in our own community. Because if we don't say stop, then who will? And a large part of your work, too, it seems looking at your website, which is uh, petergoin.com if people want to look you up. Um, a lot of your work, especially also as a professor of art, is about the aesthetic. You know, people can take a picture of something that's happening and there can be the information of what it is, of course. But how do you make art, especially out of these really, really tough situations? It goes back to how you're compelled mm -hmm. to express your opinion and thoughts and sense of aesthetics to an audience. To me, aesthetics is really just the eloquence of language. It's not the point unto itself. I understand other artists have produced work that it is intrinsically and perhaps uniquely about the beauty of whatever is being pictured. For me, the aesthetics are the language to an end, to a communication, whether it's educational, whether it's critical. I am a cultural critic, so therefore, how does, how does the language of aesthetics formulate to be able to communicate uh, to a viewing audience so that they might become more intrigued, might become more aware, might become more engaged, might also through some act of self-sacrifice realize that there are people out there who are uh, doing important work, contributing to the grand choir of our own uh, activism, and by that virtuous act they might join with us in, in presenting their opinions about whatever topic it is, from the nuclear era to climate change or whatever might matter. This is a very interesting debate in the, in the fine arts because a lot of times people feel that the fine arts should not have content. And I've been told that so many times. Well, we, we're not going to show your work or work of other people like yours because it's too content-based. It's kind of hilarious to me. If you think of Picasso's Guernica and the Spanish Civil War, one of the masterpieces of his work, I think there's some content there. So I think it's okay. I think Picasso said it's okay, so it's okay. You've written dozens of books, um, and you all, like you mentioned, your work is shown in museums nationally and internationally. How have you seen your work make an impact? Um, have people interacted with you directly, or uh, what kind of results have you seen from putting your work out there? Well, it's a certain kind of conceit to think that any of our artistic works make any difference at all, but we still yell into the wilderness because it's our, it's our compelling need as citizens to bear witness. My uh, daughter, I have two daughters, uh, and I, I raised them myself. My wife um, is deceased, but my oldest daughter said to me when she was five years old, she said, Dad, what have you done to save the world? So I, of course, embark on this long story of bearing witness and photographing and putting myself in harm's way and doing photographs of nuclear landscapes because at that time, artists were not allowed on the grounds of the nuclear landscapes. And I continue on, and after a while, she says, is this going to be a long answer? So I'll uh, try to keep this uh, a shorter answer. The fact of the matter is that we have an unbelievable need to engage with artists. It's time to stop thinking artists are ancillary, that they are merely decorative, that they are not important. Whenever a fire comes and we need to take things out of our home, a lot of times the first things that someone would think to take are their photographs, their art, because this is how we define our sense of culture and our community is by sharing these images that we hold so true to our sense of identity. As the digital age is kind of breaking down that wall between art and the mainstream, how are you 
interacting with people who are maybe consuming your art or critiquing your art? That's a great question. I really appreciate that question. I have made a commitment in my life to put my work into archives so it's publicly available. I have um, numerous archives around the country. Uh, the Bancroft uh, Library at the University of California, Berkeley, has um, almost 1,800 of my works. The Nevada Museum of Art has, I don't know, maybe 200. The University of Arizona Special Collections has uh, maybe 500. Uh, I, the Library of Congress has maybe 300. Uh, and as I continue going down this list, my own university, the University of Nevada, Reno, has maybe a thousand and the idea is to put these images into a public portal available given the nature of the public trust so that people can have access to this work they can use it for their own uh, hopefully supportive purposes uh, they can't use it to promote nuclear war they can't use it to promote misogyny uh, there are rules but generally try to make the work available not to charge a lot of money uh, if at all and so that this work can have a way of people using it and what I've discovered is that a lot of my work uh, has become historically important because of the lands I've documented where other people may not be able to go for example I photographed in the Marshall Islands and I'm the only fine art photographer to ever have gone there this is where we detonated 67 nuclear bombs at both uh, Bikini and Anahuitaca Atolls and so uh, those photographs are again this pros a prospect of bearing witness which is the cornerstone of how how I work now when I work with other groups I'm very open to sharing work uh, I've been known to give work away sometimes I'll make prints and I know it's going to come back damaged I don't treat all of my work as if it's this precious museum grade work although it's produced at that level I've had more work uh, destroyed I'd have to say sorry to admit but that's not the important part of the story. The important part of the story is that people who are committed to the ideas that I represent, whether it's dealing with water quality and scarcity, or whether dealing with the nuclear era, or with concepts of climate change, or post-climate change, which is an era I believe we're already in, which could be scary to some of your listeners, that people have images that they can use to then formulate their own philosophies and attitudes so that we don't continue on this path of ignorance, which I fear that we're also sometimes wandering down. Yeah, well, and you mentioned the kind of subject of post-climate change life. Um, including that and potentially others, what are you seeing as some emerging issues? Nuclear, uh, nuclear destruction and nuclear abuse has kind of been around for a while and is still important to be covering, but especially since you've been on the ground and you have these, all these connections, what are you seeing emerging um, that might get uh, even more important and more significant in the next 10, 20 years? You know, there's so much noise right now with our political environment. Whatever beliefs you hold, it is, it is a, just a racket of noise. What we're failing to see, I think, is the hope and the optimism. And this is something that I've learned to share. What if, and we didn't do it, but what if when the terrible hurricanes hit Puerto Rico, we didn't just throw them money and paper towels, but instead we actually helped them redesign communities that could withstand that kind of weather environment? 
what what would happen if we built and used materials that were sustainable and didn't require huge demands on a on a centralized grid what if we helped coastal communities developing housing structures that didn't at every uh, hurricane destroy them what if we created a new form of architecture new kinds of communities what if we were able to develop new kinds of agricultural development that would embrace the diversity of our own people bring people into working environments with healthy foods and with because i also publish on agriculture which i don't know if you noticed but uh, what if we dealt with with agriculture and and actually embrace the concept of it as i do that agriculture is our new nature what if we went down this path and really started focusing holistically on how to develop systems and methods for living in communities where we weren't always extractive we weren't always using fireable burnable exploitable resources why are we always building all these houses in california out of wood when we have so many other kinds of building materials why aren't we thinking more progressively about how to develop these communities why do we have to have all of our electric lines suspended above us i live in a community where in 1965 all the electric lines are underground 1965 it was built then well now why can't we do that this hope i believe is what's happening and this is part of the post climate change environment now, what happens if we move to a completely sustainable and non-carbon producing environment? What's gonna happen to your great-grandchildren? We're talking about something that's hopeful here. I'd rather focus on what's hopeful in our human narrative rather than how we can screw everything up. Hey, I think a lot of people are, are with you on that. And it seems like you know everyone has a phone in their pocket that has a camera. You see these phones coming out with three cameras now. Uh, people are buying pretty accessible um, digital cameras. Some people are still using film, of course, that's having a comeback. But basically, everyone has a lens in front of them. What would you say to someone who wants to be able to kind of bear witness in the way that you have and make that sort of impact and tell those stories? What sort of advice or um, guiding questions might you give them? such a fair question that I'm going to give you an off-the-wall answer and I'll tell you why I'm doing that maybe what could happen is that with all of these devices we're already compelled to document everything around us including ourselves I'm not complaining about that but how about next time you go out to dinner with a friend and a partner you put down your phones and look at each other and if your lovers maybe hold each other's hands and talk about the future rather than texting rather than reading the news maybe you can still share but maybe when you stand in line turn around and say hello to the person next to you. This is what technology is capable of doing, is separating us. How about using it to join us rather than to separate us? And I'm not talking about the Tinder approach or the radical approaches of, of uh, superficial social engagements. How about using it to enlighten us? How about using it so that we can find out more about the landscapes we travel in? And this is evolving as well, such that you could go down the road and you'll get a an image that'll come up with a historical narrative about how perhaps you could even engage with the legacy of conquest of Patty Limerick's book and it tells this narrative. How about engaging with narratives of other photographers who deal with the history of the medium when we can see the conquest of the West, we can see the meeting of the rails and negotiate the politics of who was excluded. Maybe we can become active citizens by using our technologies to enlighten us rather than to separate us. You know what's interesting is I read, uh, and I don't remember where, but there was this narrative of millennials that 22% of millennials are lonely and they don't have a single friend. How is that possible when they're on the phone so much? 
It's when technology separates us and not joins us. I'm not a Luddite, don't get me wrong. I teach how to use all of this. I also teach people how to make animated images to send across the transom of their own communications. But how about we remember that at the end of the day, it's all about establishing a human connection. A look into someone's eyes because you care about them, not because you desire them. A look into someone's eyes because you share some common interest, not because you just want to figure out what you can get from them. How about changing our cultural attitudes? This too is part of our hopeful future, and I think it's part of how we engage with technology. Cool. Anything I haven't asked you about or that you want to add? Well, I mean, as you could tell, I can go on for a very long time. I think what's important is to remember that one of the great institutions in our culture are our universities. Uh, this is where we um, invite and encourage and nearly expect so many of you to come and learn and participate in the classroom environment and to make this important as a passage in your own life. I would like to see us reinvest in universities. It's distressing how states are abandoning universities by withdrawing their funding, of course, shifting it to you as students, but also to faculty in that we have to raise money through our own grants. It's kind of like school teachers having to do bake sales to pay for pencils. How about we invest in our, in our universities? How about we, we reward our faculty who are dedicating themselves to the research that matters to us all? I would like to see some of that, and uh, that, that's kind of an important part is just remembering that education, and it's not just universities, it's K through 12. How about remembering how important education is and participating in it? And for all of those of you who are thinking about going in and becoming a teacher, it's a noble calling, and I would urge you to take it. Great. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. talking to you. And people can find you on your website, Instagram, do you do that? I tend to be not as active in social media for this uh, reason is because I'm spending most of my time working on these books, but I am reachable. Anybody who Googles my name can see where I am. I'm all over the map. Okay. So. Peter Goen, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to News Underground on Radio 1190. My name's Lucy, and that was my interview earlier today with Peter Goen. He is a photographer uh, centering on the American West, uh, but also working all over the place um, and he is talking actually for the Center for American West uh, tomorrow uh, October 15th at 630 um, it's going to include also uh, the Center's director Patty Limerick and uh, the executive director of E-Town Nick Forster they're going to join Peter and talk uh, about as the title says, Redemption and Reconciliation, the West in Words and Images. Uh, that is going to be free, open to the public. Um, it is at 6.30 p.m. in the Visual Arts Complex 1B20. I believe that's the large lecture hall that's in the basement. Um, so if you're interested in hearing more from Peter, uh, you can go there. That's basically all I have for you for the show tonight. Um, we will be on again on Wednesday uh, talking about Japanese Americans and uh, their history in the country and restoring their um, their archives and records with Adam Lisbon and um, this whole project that they are uh, the Adam and the CU libraries is working on um, so hang tight for that on Wednesday at 6 p.m. as always uh, and I hope that you have a great rest of your Monday and that's all I have.
Thank you for listening to News Underground on Radio 1190, 1190 AM, KVCU, Boulder, Denver, 98.9 FM, Translator, K255DA, Boulder. We're always on Radio1190.org, wherever you are, but I'm sure that you already know that. So, stay safe, stay warm out there, and have a good time.